So chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the topic, Jesus performs his first sign by turning water into wine. The title of our message, Vintage Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word. As always, Lord, we want to listen intently to what the Spirit says. And that's why we follow along the text itself, Lord, because uh, whatever I say hopefully will be meaningful. But what you're going to say to the people and to my heart as we go through this that's what's going to last. And so do that, Lord. Speak to us. Fulfill your promises. Make new promises that we've never seen before. Let us know how much you love us, Lord. And may we be filled with your grace and go out of this place more like Jesus than when we came in. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Over one million Americans homebrew beer. Homebrewing supplies have been in high demand nationwide during the pandemic. A major supplier of home brewing equipment says business has increased 50%. Home winemaking kits started under $100. I know all this by searching, by the way. <laughs> Before you throw back a cold one to fight depression from COVID-19, consider this news from England. One million additional people have become addicted to alcohol as a result of the lockdowns. The lockdowns have fueled a 20% spike in alcohol-related deaths uh, in 2020. Jesus turned water into wine. The Lord wasn't a home brewer. His disciples didn't have a winemaking kit. He was attending a wedding, and the host ran out of wine. The lack of wine had nothing to do with drunkenness. It wasn't like Captain Jack Sparrow wondering, why is the rum gone? Wine was associated with joy. The psalmist said, wine makes glad the heart of man. Putting it negatively, we read in Jeremiah, gladness and joy have been taken away. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. Why is the wine gone was a social blunder from which you might never recover. One minute there was no wine, the next there was new wine. It was a miracle touted by the Apostle John as the beginning of signs that Jesus did. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, there's no wine for you in religion. Number two, there is new wine for you in regeneration. Let's take a look at the no wine situation in verses one through six. You can probably name several movies whose opening scene is the end of the story that will be told. Saving Private Ryan is a particularly good example. The opening scene of Jesus' ministry anticipates the end of a significant portion of the Bible's story. Jesus will return to earth in his second coming as a bridegroom with his bride. A wedding feast follows. In the Revelation, we read, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana anticipates the future marriage supper when we will sit down with Jesus at that time. And so verse one, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. One commentator said the following about the third day, the strong connection to Genesis and specifically to creation thus far in John's gospel suggests that the first six days of Jesus' ministry are to be seen as parallel to the first six days of creation. Jesus, the one through whom all things were created and by whom new creation takes place, is beginning his creative activity in human history. 
John only always calls Mary the mother of Jesus. He respects her among women, but never above women. Jewish weddings followed three well-known stages. First was the betrothal. It was a legally binding engagement that took place nine months to a year before the wedding celebration. Betrothal could not be broken except by a legal divorce. Second was the procession. The groom and his friends would go to fetch the bride and joyously lead her and her friends back to the house that he had prepared for them. And then the third stage, which is described in our text, was a wedding feast. The celebration could last for as long as a week. It was a major social event for both families and for the entire community. Verse 2, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. We've met five disciples, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. We'll meet the rest of the gang later in the book. Not much fanfare when they're... Uh, they just kind of start existing with Jesus, and so John skips over that. One thing you could point out from verse 2 is that Jesus had a social life. I don't know if we think about that sometimes, but, uh, you know, all the portrayals of Jesus, usually on television, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, my all-time anti-favorite, uh, is the English blue-eyed Jesus who never blinks his eyes, and you wouldn't want him at your wedding feast. I mean, it's just a weirdo. Uh, you know, and so, so Jesus had a regular life. Uh, and he was about, he had been uh, noted by the, uh, the, John the Baptist, being identified, and now he's going to begin his public ministry. Verse 3, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Mary is not to be referred to as the mother of God, by the way. Mary was the human agent through whom the eternal son of God took on a human body and a human nature and entered the world. She is never to be revered. Uh, as anything more than a human being. The mother of Jesus evidently had a role in this feast. She stepped up like a wedding coordinator. Joy was about to turn into sour grapes. This sometimes happens here. We have a great wedding coordinator here, but occasionally something will happen and she'll find me and say, this has happened, what do we do? And I say, what is that to me, woman? No, I, I don't. I asked Jean to take care of it. And <laughs> Joy was about to turn into sour grapes, if you like that analogy. So beginning with the mother of Jesus telling him they have no wine, the dialogue between them is odd. It causes scholars headaches. The way Jesus addresses his mother and her responses, in fact, her uh, going to him in the first place, it's all a very strange conversation. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman... What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I read that as if it were disrespectful, but it's not. Of course, Jesus could never be disrespectful to his mother. Uh, it's equivalent to calling her ma'am in, in a good way. It's less intimate, obviously, than mom. I suggest that it has to do with something Jesus explains in the Gospel of Matthew. He says in chapter 12, uh, it says of him, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then someone said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister 
and mother. Jesus did not disrespect his mother or family. When it came to salvation, however, they were no different from anyone else. They didn't have preferential treatment. Woman is the perfect way to address his mother to emphasize her spiritual condition as an unbeliever. She carried baby Jesus to term, but she needed to be born again. And so he calls her woman, putting her and us on notice that, yes, he has a relationship to her as a son, but he also has a relationship to her as her Lord and Savior. And she needs to be aware of that just like everyone else. What does your concern have to do with me? Is the English translation of this saying, what to me and to you? It's apparently what Jews said when something was not their responsibility. In my family, we say something attributed to Gollum, not its business. Something, Pam will say something and, you know, hey, what about this? Not its business. And, and uh, that ends it right there. Sure it does. Uh, anyway, you probably have something like, hey, what does that have to do with me? But I like not its business because it brings Gollum into it. Gollum really makes the scene. Jesus didn't walk around doing random miracles. He hadn't performed a miracle at all because John calls this the beginning of signs. Bottom line, it is unclear what his mother expected. You know, at Christmas time, especially we sing that song, Mary, Did You Know? And it contemplates what she did and didn't know about her son as the savior of the world. I don't know what Mary expected because Jesus had never done a miracle. There are apocryphal stories of him healing birds when he was a boy. Oh, little bird. And also of him cursing people, <laughs> you know, until uh, he got his powers in line, I guess. And all fake. And the Bible says, no, this is the beginning of his signs. He'd never done a miracle prior to this. And so I don't know what Mary expected. My hour has not yet come, or similar words will occur four more times in the gospel. The fact that his time had come will be mentioned three times. It puts us on notice that God has a perfect timing despite our fears to the contrary. So we read the Bible, it's so cool that just, you know, at the last second, God comes through. We knew he would. Uh, you know, these guys in the fiery furnace or the closing of the door to the ark or whatever it is, just God is just right on time. But not so in my trials. He's always late, isn't he? God, you should have done something yesterday. How about the day before? We're on overtime now. But we always just wait on the Lord and he shows us that there was a perfect timing because he has a work to complete in us. So if Jesus' hour had not yet come, why did he perform the sign? The expositor's commentary shed some light by saying this, the whole phrase might be rendered, mother, you must let me act here in my own way. Jesus called her woman, and now he lets her know that she could not influence what he would do going forward in his ministry. He would perform his first sign, not because of his mother's request, but because of his father's leading. It reminds me, and again, no disrespect to Mary, she, I'm not saying she was like this, but as an example, it reminds me of the interfering mom, you know, in the like little beauty pageant thing or sports program or whatever, and you know, the, the mom who's just, you know, and stuff, and, and, and so uh, that's the idea. You know, I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do on my own. I don't need a manager. Mary wasn't gonna be Jesus' manager. Verse five, so his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. 
The mother of Jesus didn't take Jesus' words offensively or as a refusal. She seems to have understood that Jesus was no longer under her authority. She left it up to him to do what he was going to do or not do. On the other side of things, Jesus must have been a pretty good son, right? I mean, the son of God never, uh, you know, uh, never sinned, never did anything wrong. And so she's in a position where, why don't I just leave it to Jesus? Uh, Since we've pointed out that Jesus only did what his father told him to do, we can with confidence say that he sought the father for guidance. And, and I think the Lord obviously always in touch with the Lord through the Holy Spirit who is indwelling him and uh, the Lord speaking to him about what he wanted him to do in his life and ministry. Mary's comment has served saints for century as a wonderful rule of life. It's one of the greatest things said by any woman ever. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said that he always wanted to preach a Mother's Day sermon on these words. Whatever Jesus says to do, do it. Uh, Those are words to live by. If you're looking for a life verse or some words to live by, that would be great. Whatever you read in God's word, whatever you hear that agrees with God's word, however the Lord speaks to you in concert with God's word, just do it. Verse six, now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. The purification of the Jews were ritual ceremonial washings. They were not at all for hygiene. They were added to God's law by rabbis and passed down orally from generation to generation. Uh, Listen to these instructions about hand washing, and I'm quoting entirely from a Jewish source. So this is how Jews approach ritual hand washing. Number one, this may sound strange, but before washing your hands, be sure that they are clean. Remove your rings, unless you never remove them, in which case they're considered part of your hand. Fill a cup with water and pour twice on your right hand. Repeat on the left. Left Left-handers, reverse this order. Pour three times on each hand, making sure the water covers your entire hand until the wrist bone with each pour. Separate your fingers slightly to allow the water in between them. After washing, lift your hands chest high and say the prescribed blessing, Say this blessing only if you intend to eat more than two ounces of bread. Rub your hands together and then dry them. Be careful not to speak or get involved in anything else until you have recited the blessing on your bread and swallowed some. The Jews knew these steps like the back of their hand. At first hand, ritual washings did not seem so bad. They meant well, but purification had gradually gotten out of hand. Ordinary Jews had their hands full with extra biblical rites and rituals. Taking matters into their own hands led to self-righteousness. The religious leaders were heavy-handed and refused to lend a helping hand. They were always on hand to criticize. Give them a hand. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you. I am my own best audience. The water pots were monuments to ritual religion. There was no wine, so to speak, in religion. We would add philosophy and psychology or any vain pursuit of man that excludes God. They may seem to satisfy for a time, even a long time. In the end, you're left thirsting for the joy of salvation. Ritual religion never leads to regeneration. It doesn't lead to new birth. It's all an outward ritual that can have nothing to do with changing your heart. And I want to point out that 
These guys started off well. Their intention was to bring God into daily life. And so they would sit around and think, what if we washed a special way before eating? Sort of like you would say, hey, why don't we pray before eating? And they would add these traditions. And then over the years, they would add to them and add to them until they were an immense burden on people. And that's why we have to avoid legalism at all costs. We can't take a step in that direction because it starts to heap burdens on you. Might as well just pull the chain and all the stuff falls on you all at once. Uh, And so be careful about, traditions are great. We all have Christmas traditions, uh, Christian traditions. You know, we have traditions, but they need to be freeing. They need to really bring us into the presence of God. This ritual washing made some Jews feel self-righteous and others feel condemned. And that's not ever the Lord's intent. Verses 7 through 11, there's new wine for you in regeneration. Gimli the dwarf challenged his elf companion Legolas to a drinking game. About the time the dwarf went unconscious, the elf said that he was feeling a slight tingling sensation. Yes, Jesus created fermented wine. There's an argument that it was merely grape juice. Before you scoff, turning water into grape juice would be a miracle. It would bypass the natural process of grape production. The pulpit commentary writes, the vine with all its wonderful processes, the vineyard, the wine press, other appliances have all been dispensed with and the same power which said, let there be light called these additional elements together originated them by his will. So yeah, you and I can't take water and turn it into Welch's grape juice. It it would bypass the entire process. And so that would be a miracle. What the grape juice argument fails to consider is that most time when wine is mentioned in the Bible, the context is a caution that it could cause drunkenness. It's definitely fermented. And it's also true that the Jews diluted their wine three to one to avoid drunkenness. And so, yes, they drank, uh, as far as I can tell, they drank a lot of wine, but being drunk wasn't a virtue. This passage is not about whether or not a Christian can or should drink alcohol, and I don't want to get into that this morning. What I would say is have it to yourself and to God. Uh, you, You need to have your own talk with the Lord about that. My only comment is a hopefully judgment-free observation. When I was saved in 1979... Drinking alcohol was the exception, not the rule for believers. Quite the opposite is now the case. I sincerely hope it isn't evidence that we're becoming more like the world. One thing that does happen to us as Christians, we become desensitized to the world and become more like it. We're way behind. I mean, we lag pretty far behind the world, but it isn't any good to just be a little bit better than the world, right? We want to be in the world, but not of the world. Let's go on in verse 7 now. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I explained at some length last week that we attribute Jesus' works on earth in his first coming to his being submitted to his Father and empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. They are not works of his deity, even though he was fully God and fully human. If they were works performed from deity, Jesus could not have promised us He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And so Jesus said, before he was crucified, he said, guys, I'm going home. Uh, 
and the works I did, you're going to do similar works, more of them, greater, because there's more of you. But if, if Jesus was doing everything as God, then we couldn't do his works because we're not God and we're never going to become God. And so the Lord indicated that, hey, I, I did this as a man controlled by the Holy Spirit, and so can you. And then we see that in the book of Acts. And so the Lord becomes our example. We can't look at the Lord and say, oh, that was easy for Jesus because he was God. If anything, it was harder for him because he was God, because he had laid aside the prerogatives of his deity and, and had to follow only his father's instruction. Have you ever been in a think tank kind of meeting in which each person must suggest a solution to the problem at hand? Foolish plans usually get overruled if they are brought up at all. God will ask you to do things that might seem foolish. We talk about that a lot here. We are the foolish things that confound the wise. So many Bible stories uh, where the, the hero asks, acts foolishly, uh, where God tells them to do something that has nothing to do with anything, and then they get the victory. It's comforting for me to know that God the Father asked Jesus to do things that seemed foolish. I see the Lord giving this to Jesus a little at a time. Father, what should I do? Fill the water pots with water. Okay. How is that going to fix your problem of winelessness? Why do I send Nathaniel to Bevmo? That, that would solve it. The servants would also seem like fools because they had to deliver this uh, water to the host. Nevertheless, they obeyed Jesus. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. We're not told when the water was wine. Knowing God's perfect timing and his sense of humor, I'd guess that it was the moment the master of the feast tasted it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Everything in this miracle shows no collusion between Jesus and any of the persons at the feast. This wasn't a magician's illusion. It wasn't David Blaine turning water into wine and you know, figuring out how it's done. It was a full-blown miracle. And he said to him, verse 10, every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. A proficient master of the feast had a refined palate for foods and beverages. He recognized a superior vintage when he tasted one. Having well drunk doesn't mean they were drunk. Quite the opposite. It may mean when they had drunk as much as they judged proper or as much as they desired. For example, did any of your guests drink too much at your wedding? I bet it wasn't fun. Nothing like a drunken Uncle Joe. Uh, to, to ruin the festivities, right? That person was not well drunk. And so there's a difference between being drunk and well drunk. Being well drunk in the Jewish culture was they were enjoying the wine like Legolas and not like Gimli. It strikes me odd that in a culture so stressed out about hospitality that any host would buy Ripple and Thunderbird to, to serve towards the end. I mean, when do you make that decision? It's a, we read this sadly and we get the idea that this is a drunken kind of party where uh, uh, give them anything now, they won't know the difference. They'll drink anything now. But this is, a, this is a, an important feast where people are, are observing decorum and manners. 
And so I, I don't know, I have a problem with that. In a culture where, where hospitality is so important that if you have a guest and don't have anything to serve him, you have to wake up your neighbor at midnight by banging on their door. I need help over here. And so this has always struck me as odd. Maybe, and this is just a maybe, maybe the master saying was a maxim, which I take to be a short, easily remembered expression of some homespun wisdom. An example in English would be birds of a feather flock together. Now, the interesting thing about maxims is that for most of them, there is a contrary maxim. Birds of a feather might flock together, but we also say opposites attract. The bigger, the better, but we also say good things come in small packages. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, but one man's meat is another man's poison. You're never too old to learn, but can't teach an old dog new tricks. So which is it? Well, it's whatever one fits the situation that you're in. And so a competing maxim to the masters here would be, you save the best for last, you put your best foot forward. So I, I don't know what he's saying, uh, you know, if this is a maxim or if they actually did serve rot gut wine towards the end. No matter how we take the master's statement, the wine he tasted was the best wine he would ever taste again in his life. He would be longing for that again and again. He maybe became a follower of Jesus just for that. I remember bumper stickers that said, God don't make no junk. Remember that? Maybe you don't, you're too young. But uh, it, it, the idea is that when the Lord does something, he doesn't. This is one of the things we have against miracle workers. A lot of times miracles, when you go to a tent revival or something like that, they happen a little at a time. They, people don't get totally healed. They get pulled up out of their wheelchair and they're all rickety and stuff. And then you find out that they can get out of their wheelchair anyway. And so I, I don't know, you know, the Lord, when he does something, he goes full on. You are never going to taste a wine like this until the marriage supper of the lamb, when we drink it again with him. And he's going to say, hey, this is the wine. This is our joy. Verse 11, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Saying the sign was a beginning puts us on notice that there is a specific set of signs Beginning with turning water into wine, there are going to be six miracles that the Gospel of John specifically identifies as signs. A sign makes what it stands for more evident than words. In this case, they make evident Jesus' glory. Jesus performed the signs that the Jewish scriptures attributed to the coming Messiah. His identity, his glory was thereby manifested by these signs. Jesus would say to the disciples of John who came to him with questions, say, hey, Look at what I'm doing. This is what the Messiah will do. This is the glory of the Messiah. His disciples believed in him doesn't mean that they did not believe before the miracle. What the Lord did in Cana strengthened their belief in him. As I mentioned, Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day that I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. It's going to bring him joy. We might go so far as to say that we are his joy. We wait for our heavenly bridegroom. While we wait, we have, in a spiritual sense, new wine in the person of God the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The Holy Spirit is mentioned with wine in the Bible. The disciples received the promised gift of the Spirit on Pentecost and were so full of joy that they were accused of what? Being drunk. In the churches that were afterward founded, believers are reminded 
Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, uh, to the Lord, rather, with your heart. You and I in Christ are vessels filled to the brim with this new wine. We are well drunk as it is with the Holy Spirit. Now, we've been getting encouraged about our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, in these studies in the Gospel of John. Regardless if you are a charismatic or a cessationist, wherever you are on the spectrum of spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit, all Christians believe the following. The moment you believe and receive Jesus, you are baptized or plunged into the body of Jesus Christ. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Since he is a person and not a force, you can't have only a part of him. He has to be present in full. This is a very important point. Uh, all of us kind of, uh, I, I do the same thing. We talk about the Holy Spirit as if, he, as if it is a force when he is a person. And so I, I, I can either have the Holy Spirit or I cannot have him controlling me. I can't have him partially controlling me because I'm not full. Do you understand? I'm, it's not like a battery. It, 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 there's not a recharge. You know, it's like, I'm all worn out. I need a recharge of the Holy Spirit. No, you just need to yield to the Holy Spirit because he's a person, not a battery. Then the empowering of the Holy Spirit was unconditionally promised to you as a gift to be received, not achieved. Jesus said, wait for the promise of the Father. He's, he's going to shed the Spirit on you. They prayed because that's what they did all the time. They didn't pray necessarily to, to work up the Holy Spirit or to convince him to come. He came while they were praying. And, and that's, uh, you know, uh, the way it is. So the idea that you have to do something to have the Holy Spirit uh, come upon you is not true. And God says to us that he is a good, good father who will give the Holy Spirit every time you ask him. And we pointed out a few weeks ago, part of our problem is we don't meet our problems the way that God wants us to. Problem at work, problem at home, the idea, hey, I, I need to get out of here. I need a situation change. I need a new job. I need a new marriage. I need something different. And then I can really walk with the Lord and serve you. And the Lord says, no, don't you understand? This is it. You're the Christian. You're maybe the only Christian in this work site. Of course the people hate you. You should be happy they haven't murdered you yet. Because you're the only Christian. You're the light of the world. Even if you don't say anything, the devil knows you're a Christian. And at any moment, you might explode with a testimony. And so he's after you. Rejoice in your trials. Don't consider it strange. And if we can cultivate that attitude, then we will yield to the indwelling spirit and say, oh, okay, you want me to rise above my circumstances. I want to live under them until they're good. And the Lord says, no, no, get out from under there and together we'll meet this thing. Believe the promise, receive the gift, ask your father for it. What good father would uh, refuse his son and what a great father we have. Amen.